Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 155. My name is Irvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fuleman? Not too bad. How about yourself? I've been enjoying having hockey on in the evenings. It gives me more of a reason to, like, not have to work late because now I can convince myself that I have to do my other job of watching the Leafs. Right. This is definitely not just a coping mechanism to deal with the fact that, you know, (laughs) North American society forces us to work too hard. Yeah. Um, Let's just try and focus on the Leafs being a nice consolation there because that's too deep and will hurt us if we think about it too long. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you know what? And I don't think I ever got to the point where I was like, oh, I'm not going to watch the Leafs. Like, that would have been delusional, and even I recognize that. But I'm surprised at how much I've been just happy to have them back. Yeah, like they I mean, are fun. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because during during the game, I'm kind of like grumpily staring at the TV screen, but then I enjoy thinking about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so that's something, right? Exactly. And yeah, uh, it, it's nice to have topics. Also, I think we tried to hang in as well as we could over the summer. You know, finding stuff to talk about. But there's always that little stretch towards the end of August and the start of September where we're like okay, we really could use some more material to talk about. So mm. now we have some. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we'll start with some not fun material, which is that Peter Morazic, who got injured halfway through his first game in the Leaf uniform, is going to be out for two weeks. Could have been worse. It's a growing injury. Two weeks is not that long a time span to recover from something like that. But it does put the Leafs in a bit of a bind, and it put them in such a bind with the sour cap that last night... They actually had to sign a U of T collegiate goalie, Alex Bishop, to an amateur tryout uh, offer. You don't see those that often. It's It was like an e-bug situation. So, yeah, thankfully Jack Campbell was up to the challenge, and Mr. Bishop got to enjoy the game from the bench. But a little bit of a squeeze. Um, longer term, we're going to have Michael Hutchinson. Yeah, and he'll be up on an, an emergency recall, I believe. Right. Right, and I I think the rule is like you have to essentially play short one day before that becomes available to you. Uh, I haven't read up on the specific cap mechanics of it, but I guess the long and short of it is that like we we with this emergency recall, we now do have the cap room, I suppose. Yeah, we've gotten them on the roster by hook or by crook anyway, so we'll take it. Uh, There's a longer and better red article on our front page from Katja, as you'd expect, uh, if you'd like to read about it in more detail. But it does raise the question of. How many games is Hutchinson going to play? And I don't think the number is zero. Mm-hmm. Next two week. Next weekend, the Leafs have the Sharks on Friday and the Penguins on Saturday. And I don't think the Leafs want to be playing Jack Campbell in back-to-backs in October with the aspirations they have down the road. So I'm going to say at least one, maybe two starts for Hutchinson. Yeah, it's, it, it, seem, it seems that way. Um Hutchinson is, is playing the Martin Marinson memorial role of, man, how is this guy still here? Very much so. Although, you know what? Last year, we said this, and yes. we might have been a bit disquieted by the prospect of having to play him again, because the year before he was dreadful. But he was as good as we could have hoped last year, was, and they won a bunch yeah, of games. Yeah. Absolutely. And, I mean, as a third goalie, I, I think... It's it's very similar to the Marinson thing in that people were like really upset when Marinson played, and it's like, well, he's a seventh defenseman. Like, of course, he's not that good. Yeah, right. Like, he, you're using him when things have gone badly, and it's the same with Hutchinson. Like, he's a third goalie. He is fine as a third goalie. Yeah, exactly. And if he were notably better than a third goalie, 
he wouldn't clear waivers, which is uh, a part of his job description that's pretty relevant because we send him down to the AHL. Um, unless you draft a really good goalie, this is kind of what your third goalie is going to look like. It's going to be a Michael Hutchinson caliber-esque player. And if nothing else, he seems like a really nice guy. So let's hope that he can hold the fort for one of those two games. I mean, I might play him against the Sharks because I'm like, well, it's the, it's Sharks. the Sharks. Yeah. <laughs> Their goaltending might not even be better. So, yeah, we'll <laughs> see. But Yeah. Um, I mean, on the positive side, Campbell has been very good to start the year. And actually, this can probably lead into what we'll spend the majority of the podcast talking about, which is just our broad impressions from the first three games. Mm-hmm. And Campbell's definitely been on the positive side of that ledger. Yeah, I think undeniably. We all know that Jack Campbell has the talent and the ability to be a very good goalie. And everyone loves him. I wish someone would attach a bungee cord to the waistband of his pants so that he was not allowed to leave the net by any great distance at any time. <laughs> However, with that caveat, he's been really, really good. And he's yeah, played I two mean- and a half games now. Yeah, saying that, if, if that uh, Drake Batherson goal uh, against Ottawa just before the end of the second period ended up counting, we would be like, we would be pointing a much bigger spotlight at like, Campbell, what the hell are you doing, man? Yeah, it's that weird thing about goals that get called back is you just sort of memory hold them, but he handled that pretty poorly, as did everyone else. So we're certainly relieved that uh, that went away and the Leafs got the win last night. Yeah, um, as we've consistently yeah. said, offside reviews are great. <laughs> If there's one thing that's important, it's that the game slow up exciting plays and frequently overturn them over trivial differences of a couple of inches several seconds before they happened. So, yes. yeah, very good. If you okay. don't like that, you don't like NHL hockey. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. The action, the angles, the Zapruder footage that they, <laughs> they apply to the skates. Yeah, so, but Jack Campbell has been good. And my only real question with Campbell at this point is durability. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't played 32 games in an NHL season ever. Uh, he was into the 50s between the NHL and the AHL one year, a couple years back. But th- if we turn him into the 1A starter, this is going to be the most taxing NHL season of his career. Yeah. No, the, the durability is definitely a concern. I, I mean, he's been so good with the Leafs that it's it's also, it's easy to forget that you know, just how good he is is also like a concern in the sense that goalies just have these gigantic error bars. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what Campbell's true level of play is, really. Like, it feels like he's been here for, for a while, and he's been good for that entire while. But as you said, it's been spread out over a, a kind of a long period and not that many games, relatively speaking. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, every single good game that he has, there's like a little more evidence, a little more evidence, like, okay, this guy, this guy's legit, right? And that's really really important for us um for for obvious reasons right i don't need to explain to our, our brilliant listeners that you know goaltending is important I, it's you know you guys probably come for a bit more detailed analysis than that but it is yeah so. absolutely and no team with notably bad goaltending is going to achieve jack shit ask the philadelphia flyers who look like they're just on the way to experiencing that again but mm. yeah i, I mean we all like Jack Campbell, and I think that with the amount of good play that he's shown us, we all have a growing level of confidence in him. Some people have said, hey, the race is over. He won it. He's our guy. Let's let's ride him, and let's ride him into the playoffs. And I think that's fine, too. Um, but it does give me some pause when you look outside the market, and there's just not 
that much level of faith in mm. him. Like, the Athletic did this <laughs> pretty absurd. But ranking of starting goaltenders. and It was one of those customs pieces where he just, like, talks to people and reports what they write. And, like, there's nothing you could add to what they write that makes it, that tops it either as analysis or performance art. Yeah, well, I just wish that they explained why more. And maybe if they don't because there's just nothing behind the curtain uh, on some of these evaluations. But it's often like, yeah, you know, he, he's been good, but can he, you know, really do an NHL goalie's job? And I'm like, that's what we're asking you. And, and, you know, like, we're not getting any information here that really counts as analysis. We're just getting you saying, I have some feelings. Um, anyway, but they put Jack Campbell about 25th on that pretty dubious list mm. among starting goalies. And I'm like, I looked at the list and I was thinking, that seems a bit ungenerous, but like if the Leafs have the 25th best goaltending in the NHL, that's not going to be great. We're hoping for mm-hmm. higher than that. So yeah, I, I do th- think about track record and durability, but that said with Morazic out, he's our guy and we just have to keep hoping he keeps doing what he's been doing. So. Yeah. And then hope that Morazic comes back. And I Morazic didn't look amazing in, in the, I guess, two periods against Ottawa. Although I mean, the Leafs yeah. as a whole didn't really look amazing. I'm not. I'm not really blaming Mrazek specifically. Even if he hadn't gotten hurt, I'd probably give him a pass on that. Just because mm. a couple of those goals were pinballs. Yeah. You know, there was the one that was 100% kicked in, by the way, and then yes. there was a double deflection, and then there was like a last minute buzzer, buzzer beater. I'm not saying it's great, and over a longer sample, it's like you have to start doing better than whatever that was. But in a couple of minutes, goals. Yeah, like it's, that not, was it's not like yeah. critically worrisome or anything like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, Cam- Campbell's been good. That's very good. That's probably like if you're if you're evaluating, you know, in the first three games, what do we want to see for us to believe that the Leafs are, are still a con- or not still a contender? Eight have become a contender. I don't think we can ever say still a contender because we haven't done a whole lot of contending. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Campbell playing well is is a, a big part of that. Um, other things on the positive end, William Nylander. The exceptionally positive end. I don't think there's any doubt he's been our best player. Yeah. Our best skater, at least. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, and he's been, been doing it all. Uh, we've talked before about how Nylander probably isn't a better player than Mitch Marner, because we are obliged to compare them until the heat death of the universe. But Nylander is pretty complete. He can do a lot of things himself. And so even when he's in a situation where, you know, his best line mate is Alex Kerfoot, which is not a feather bed of a situation by any means, he can still look like a very good player. And so, yeah, he's been the best player on the team, and I think he's been the best player on the ice, at least in a couple of those games. And that's impressive. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, what he's doing is not tremendously easy right now in the sense that he's playing with not great, Leafs players for the most part, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we like Kerfoot and Bunting. This is our second line. It's it's not a good second line, right? Or, or to the extent that it's a good second line, it's entirely because of the efforts of William Nylander. Right. He's really elevating a couple of guys. Actually, you know, the, the, the cliche about elite forwards is, well, can he drive a line? And this is what that looks like. When you're in a situation, there's not much doubt as to who's driving that line. It's mm-hmm. him. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And they do have the benefit of, you know, teams are matching up more prime, more strongly to Tavares and Marner, as they should. Um, but, you know, he's not beating up on fourth lines or anything here. He, and, and as we always say, you know, competition is less impactful, generally speaking, than, um, than teammates, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we can kind of take, take this at face value of, like, look, Nienander is really, really helping drive a line right now, which we absolutely need. Because otherwise there is, you know, we can't consistently rely on offense from the third line. We'll get to them. Uh, and they're still on the positive side of things, but we need to be realistic about what they are. And then, you know, you, you can't say, okay, well, let's count on a goal from, from Jason Spezza and Wayne Simmons. Right. right. It happens. It happened last night. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened actually against Ottawa, too, although Spezza's goal was on the power play. But that's not consistent, necessarily, right? And you can't expect it to be. So, yeah, we need that second line to be something, especially in the absence of Austin Matthews. And Nylander has kind of woed it into existence at this point. And... He's, he's just been on it in every way, right? His, his play with the puck has been as good as ever. And I think there, there's, a, there's a part of him that, I mean, this, this is similar to what we, what we said uh, and what you were alluding to with him being kind of so, so good at so many things offensively. Uh, there's a part of him where I think it really, he really benefits from being, from not having to even def- think about deferring to people. Mm. I'm just like, okay, like, remember when he was drafted, his Twitter bio was give me the puck. <laughs> which yeah. is just that first off like number one that's some king shit right there yeah absolutely right but number two it's like yeah like on this line the, the plan is give me the puck give me Lander the puck mm-hmm. and he, he will do something with it and he has that confidence right now and he has the skills to, to back it up the other thing that's been impressive and he's always been good at this in the offensive zone um, so I'll, I'll mention that first the other thing that's been impressive is his, his tenacity to get the puck back mm-hmm. um so there's, he's created a lot of offensive zone turnovers, and I've said this many times before, offensive zone turnovers are the best playmaker in the world, right? Because it catches opponents unaware, they're out of position, they have to go from forwards to backwards, it takes time. It, you know, that's, it, it, that's what you want to create. And against good teams, that's hard to create, but Nylander is very good at that, as are Matthews and Marner, by the way. Um, so, and that's exactly how the, the Kerfoot goal was scored, right? Uh, four check where we, we won the puck battle. Uh, I think Bunting and Nylander won the puck battle. Nylander steps over the puck, makes a great pass to Kerfoot. Easy goal, mm-hmm. right? And when you don't have players uh, playing with you who can you know, systematically break down set defenses, you have to take advantage of those low-hanging fruit. Nylander's done so thus far. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, really all to the good. Now, he'll have ups and downs throughout the season, yes. as everyone does, but... Nylander was very good in the playoffs against Montreal. He's been good to start this season, and I think there's certainly some hope that he's sort of reached his mature form now where we can count on him to be a first-line caliber player. And if Mm -hmm. so, that's the strength of this team. Um, As we've said time and again, as a lead offense. And so as particularly John Tavares gets older, (laughs) we may need that more and more for the strength to be coming from the right wing on that line. Yes, and I guess the other good thing is he's been playing a lot at 5-on-5 five five and playing a lot generally, at least in the first two games. Um, he is playing a bit on the penalty kill now, which is, I mean, I, I don't think he's moving the needle a whole lot there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, maybe we'll, we'll see him grow into it more. And I, I can see the idea because he, he, he can be you know, a puck thief, and certainly if he gets the puck at any point... He has the confidence to just play keep away with it and mm-hmm. kill twenty five seconds. So that's that's productive. Um, but yeah, y- yesterday in, in the second game against Ottawa, he didn't play nearly as much, and I guess that's like a mild concern. Um, 
and I hope the first two games are, are really what what sticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because certainly without Austin Matthews, like the 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 list of real players the Leafs have is much smaller, mm-hmm. and we need to use the fact that we have a real player in William Nylander. Absolutely. Uh, the thing about the penalty killing. That feels to me more like a didactic thing. Like, this is Keith trying to teach Nylander to do things well defensively or to reward commitment and be like, see, you're a well-rounded player now and all this sort of stuff. In terms of when the time comes in the playoffs, do I want William Nylander to be playing a bunch of BK minutes? Probably not. I don't think that's what he's for, and I don't think that the team is deep enough that it can be shunting 5v5 minutes away from William Nylander. He should be playing a lot, as we've said. It should be on the power play and at five on five. And we have other people to do the penalty killing thing. That said, you know, maybe this, this will be good for him. I, I do think that um, just in general, the stars on the PK thing is fun and I don't hate it. And it's always great when someone runs off for a shorthanded goal. But I think that as much as anything, it's, it's almost an outgrowth of the hockey morality play thing where like to be yeah. really good, you have to learn to, to do all of the jobs. And, and, you know, that's great. But some people are just really good at different jobs. Yeah. And that's fine, too. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, that means so yesterday, Nylander played the fourth least of any forward at 5-on-5. Five five. Right? And it's like, okay, I... I, I look, there, there's arguments to it. There were some special teams, although there was less special teams in this game than there was in the first... Uh, the, in the first Ottawa game, I'm pretty sure. Like, there was mm-hmm. more 5v5 five time. Um... We were leading for a lot of it, so it's like, okay, maybe you want to preferentially play the third line a bit more. Um, Nylander didn't have amazing on-ice stats in last night's game. Like, it trailed his line mates, although I think from watching it, that seemed more like he was doing the right things, and for whatever reason, like, the puck was, you know, bouncing off people's stick. Maybe a defenseman would make a, would pass out of the zone for no reason. Um, Like, I didn't think that had much to do with Nylander specifically as much as it did just, you know, kind of idiosyncratic uh, variants. Mm Mm-hmm. But still, you know, even with all of that, it is just a little bit weird where it's like, man, do I, do I really want um, do I really want David Kampf playing 90 seconds more at 5-on-5 five five than William Nylander? Do I really yeah. want Pierre Engvall playing half a minute more than William Nylander? And, like, again, that third line was good, but just in a general sense, is that what we want? And the thing that I think draws more attention to it is that the Saturday game was at home. Keith had the last change. He can chase mashups more easily. Whereas Thursday was on the road in Ottawa. To some extent, he has to accept what the other coach is going to do, unless he's willing to make aggressive changes on the fly to follow it up. I think Sheldon Keith has wanted to shut down line and this will segue for a very long time. I think he's got the outlines of one in the very early going and Katja keeps saying, okay, I want to see this third line play against, like, a real <laughs> top line or against, like, a really good team with offensive stars, mm-hmm. which Ottawa doesn't have and Montreal has to a limited extent. And that's fair. So uh, a bit TBD on that. But I think that Sheldon Keefe believes he's got the answer. He's got at least the best answer he's had access to in some time. And so he's really keen to play this shutdowny third line, and that's great, but... Letting the other side dictate matchups to a great extent to the point where you stop playing what looks to be your best forward on the ice right now, I don't love that. 
Yeah, it's the kind of thing that some, worries me in a playoff game. There's definitely some galaxy brain potential here. Yeah. And again, this this has nothing to do with our opinions of the third line, which they've been they've been really good. I think you know we we were a little bit negative on conference, like okay, you know, we we just signed the the shutdown guy on the worst defense in the league, <laughs> and we're we're expecting that to be the the core of a shutdown line. And I I don't think, I mean I, I don't think we were unfair about it to the sense that we we said he has he, you know he's not useless, but mm-hmm. we were a little worried that like okay is he going to be up to the task. Uh, on a on a real third line, we still don't know the answer because again, Ottawa and Montreal are not incredibly strong offensive teams. Mm-hmm. But you know, if this was like a necessary, te- this is like a, the last three games have been like a necessary test. Like if if they had failed against Ottawa and Montreal, then there's no hope against Tampa, against Boston, against Florida. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 been good to see this third line of Camp, Kasha, and Engvall have some defensive utility um like they're, they're not really get, they're not getting shelter certainly in terms of zone usage they have very very extreme defensive zone usage and in terms of competition they're they're not like getting hard matched to top lines because that would be very dumb mm-hmm. um and that would lead to the galaxy braining of okay now we're playing jay mcclement 20 minutes a game yeah but um they're they're not like they're, they are playing kind of a bit above their station so to speak in, at least in, in some situations and that that's also good to see yeah, absolutely. And I think I am pretty inclined to believe they have the defensive chops to do that. But when we signed David Comp, one of the things we talked about is if he's your third line center, you have a third line that is not going to score very much. And yes. that's a problem because people need to put pucks in the net to some extent. You know, Comp and Kasha have zero points as yet in the regular season. Mm-hmm. That's also not incidental i don't want to over fixate on points in three games i'm just saying nothing they've done in th- these three games really allays my concern that this line won't score enough despite right. kasha i think doing his damnedest to drive some offense yeah he had like 10 shots in the first uh, in the first game he was really you know going for it um and i mean engel had a really good first game and then I, I always love it when this happens where like, you know, some, some depth player has a really good start to the year or just even one really good game. And everyone's like, Oh, well maybe he can turn the corner. And then there's, <laughs> you, there's usually a crash back to reality. It doesn't usually happen in the very next game. That was immediate. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He made this absolutely brain dead. Um, breakout passes the wrong word. It didn't go out. And I don't know how it could have aspired to be a breakout pass, but it was like horizontal from just inside his own blue line ju- to just inside the blue line on the other side where nobody was except an Ottawa Senator who came in and was like, okay. And went and scored it like, and I think everyone big mistakes goals in hockey, right? It's mm. often there's a turnover. There's something that happens. Someone's a little out of position. We always break it down. And the truth is, on a lot of goals, it takes a village. A lot of people had to miss a little thing or not make the best play. That was just a hundred percent on Pierre Engvall, pretty well. <laughs> like I did, that was his fault. So yeah. anyway, after that terrific game that he uh, that he had beforehand, so let's hope for uh, for more of the former and less of the latter. In his but yeah, I mean, it, it is it is still concerned that the third line doesn't have much offense, and I know it can be allayed somewhat. It's like okay, maybe the fourth line has a bit more offense than the average fourth line. Um, but yeah, I mean. There's, there's, in the first game, it, in the first and third games that Lisa played, 
they didn't trail for very long, right? Montreal, they trailed briefly and then it was tied for a large portion until Neander uh, scored the winning goal. Uh, yesterday, the Leafs were ahead basically the entire game. And in that situation, you can see yourself being like, yeah, okay, we have this shutdown third line. Nothing's going to happen there, and that, that's, that's, that's fine. When you're behind, as we were against Ottawa in Ottawa, it suddenly becomes like a little bit depressing when you, you see that shutdown line get over the board. It's like, okay, fuck, well, this is 45 seconds that is just going to go by, and the, nothing's going to happen for, to get us back into the game. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's just the reality. And what I don't want to happen is for us to get into a situation where we get leads and then start playing the shutdown line more than whatever line William Neander is on. Yeah, I, like I keep thinking, this all trends in the direction of, okay, we'll be positioned to sit on leads in a way that I just do not believe this team should, frankly, even attempt. Yes. You know, like they don't have it in them. I don't no. think so. They can be better. And it can still be worthwhile to have this good defensive third line. I'm just like, if this team is going to nurse a 2 nothing uh, advantage all the way home, like the way the New York Islanders can do or the peak Columbus Blue Jackets did, I just don't think this horse is meant to run that race. So, we'll yeah, see. I, I agree. <laughs> so, I've been positive about the third line. And I've been positive about time on ice allocations in the first two games. The last game gave, just gave me a tiny bit of pause of like, mm. okay, what's it going to look like in, in games where we get a lead? And... I mean, spoiler alert, the Leafs, and this is our general opinion, the Leafs are a good team, yeah. right? We, we hope to be playing with a lead fairly significant portion of the time. So, you know, our, our time on its allocation with a lead is, is definitely a thing we need to consider. And if that's going to be a situation where we're going to routinely overplay this third line, that can be a concern. But this is something to evaluate going forward. It's not something where I'm ringing the alarm bells now. It's just something to monitor. Yeah. Um... And All I that said, there, yeah. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. There are worse problems in the sense that, okay, at least in those situations, A, we'll have a lead, and B, this third line appears to be somewhat useful right now. And when Matthews comes back, presumably Kerfoot gets, gets bumped down to, to this line, uh, or, or maybe he gets bumped down to the fourth line somehow in this weird... <laughs> that's another roster decision that we'll have to discuss at some point, but um, th- it's possible that this line gets strengthened in some way. Yeah, and so we'll wait and see on that one. In the short term, the encouraging things are Kasha looks about as good as I could have hoped. Mm-hmm. Kampf looks like the best version of himself. Yeah, as also a very good, good defensive. As we could have hoped, but like yeah. our hopes were not that high. Like, again, I, yeah. I, I've had some people talk to me and say, I think you know Kampf can get thirty points this year, and I think Kampf can get thirty points over the course of his contract with the Leafs. <laughs> I don't think he's getting thirty points this year. I would be very surprised. Right. And, and, you know, in fairness, he, he can be successful without hitting 30 points. It's mm-hmm. just, that's what we're dealing with now. We're getting a guy who does not score very much. Yes. You know, if he has 30 so, points and he's great defensively, he's filled a no. Oh, ab- but, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And again, this is, this is, it's super, super important for the Leafs top two lines to basically always be humming as a result, mm-hmm. because just the, the other offense is idiosyncratic. The Leafs don't have great offensive producers from the back end. I know like Morgan Riley is obviously a very great offensive defenseman, but his offensive chops are more uh, collaborative, and which, by the way, is a feature to me, not a bug, right? Like, I, I don't want... I, I, think, I think, you know, offensive defensemen can sometimes be cannibalizing. That's definitely not the case with Riley. It's not the case with Sandine, right? But it also means that you don't get, like, easy offense, like, no, you know, low-hanging fruit offense 
that takes you to like some base some base level of floor raising with them that you do with like say Shea Weber. Mm-hmm. Um, y- yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and that ties in actually to something else that we've noticed. Just as an aside, the Leafs seem to be shooting for high tips mm. a little bit more often this year, uh, prominently Riley and Sandine. Um, Sandine appears to be quite good at it to me, and it, it does seem like Sandine's able to get it get the pucks through yeah. relatively well. And, you know, I've talked about this actually with my dad. He thinks, you know, the the problem or one of the problems, he says, with the Leafs power play is they don't have a big shooting threat at the point. Shea Weber would be the archetypal example of what that looks like. And I'm thinking, well, one, for the reasons we just discussed, I'm not huge on defensemen taking a lot of shots because even good defensemen shooting a lot are generally not as good as good forwards shooting a lot. But if we can get those kind of floating wristers that are still a threat because they might be tipped and they can be tipped by players like say Nick Ritchie, Michael Bunting, John Tavares, most prominently, um, or Mitch Marner in the, in the bumper role with a high tip. That's, that's good. I think that that's enough to make that a real threat back there. And it's something the defenses have to account for despite not being a big cannon. Yeah, it is It is a bit of a change. I mean, it's three games, so it's very hard yeah. to, to really, you know, judge things c- concretely right now. But certainly, you know, under Keefe, the Leafs have not really been a point-shot-heavy team at all. If you look at their, their shot plots on hockey viz or something like that, um, we we seem to really avoid those those areas. And, like, the top end of the zone is, is for people to kind of cycle around and then walk the line and look for passing options to probe. Mm-hmm. Right, and then like the the last case is okay, float it in through or try and get it on net and see what happens. Mm-hmm. This year, there seems to, relatively speaking, more of our shots are just more of the plays from the point are actually just shots. Right um, now, under Babcock, this was not uncommon as well. Although again, it was it was more fo- focused on high to low offensive plays, right? So like getting the puck back to the point and then. More often than under Keith, getting it on than Keith until this year at least, getting it on net somehow or, or using that as as a as a means to get the puck back in deep. So I wonder if we're reverting to those offensive patterns again. Um, the high to low play is not typically considered a very high value play, but it's very available, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there there's this temptation, especially among hockey stats people, to be like, you know, it's a bit like, well, why don't they make the whole plane out of the black box? Right, mm-hmm. like, why, why, why don't we just only use cross ice passes and from behind the net and things like that? And that's because um, defenses gear to take that stuff away by default. And if you sh- don't show any ability to to deviate from that, they take it away even further, right? Because defenses are not static; they're dynamic. It, this is, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's a competitive optimization, right? You're optimizing your own offense, and the defense is reacting to how you're playing and trying to take away what you're good at. So, um, as a result, the, the high to low is, is always, it's always there because it's the, that's where defenses want to give up space because it's the least dangerous spot of the offensive zone. Mm-hmm. And I guess we'll see what, are, going into the future, what the patterns look like from that position. Um, because, yeah, it has been a bit more shot heavy on this year than it has been in previous years under Keefe, at least to my eye. I do think that against Montreal, and this was really noticeable in Game 7, mm-hmm. when things really went to hell, the Leafs did not get shots from the slot 
at all. Like and Montreal same against Columbus the year before. Yeah, Montreal uh, built in, a barricade in, yeah. around the most dangerous area of the ice, and the Leafs just didn't crack it. And so a play like this, which can originate and get a redirection before it even gets to that level, is one effort, I think, to work around that that obstacle. And then at least maybe you create some chaos in front of the net. You start generating some chances just on the, the madness that ensues. And, at least theoretically, you have guys like Nick Ritchie and Michael Bunting who can maybe swoop in and take advantage of the opportunities you thereby generate. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think yeah. that's the idea. No, it, it's very much not perfect for the reasons that we discussed. Like it, mm-hmm. These are low-probability plays generally. Right. Right? So, But it's, I guess, maybe a cross-sport analog would, would, would be... It, it's not dissimilar to kind of isolation scoring in basketball mm-hmm. where th- it's not always the highest points per possession, but you can almost always get into that action without the defense blowing it up. Mm-hmm. And when defenses are really locked in and when you're facing really good defenses, it, there's immense value in just being able to create a shot from nothing. Similarly, I wonder if the Leafs are trying to focus more on this in the sense of being able to take this relatively undangerous situation and, and find ways to make it relatively more dangerous uh, and, and to you know utilize the skills they have to do so we, we don't know this is all conjecture right um, but it, it's worth it's worth considering right there there's I think actually Ottawa is a good example of this because they're not a good team mm-hmm. but I think one thing they do gen, genuinely fairly well is they cut off the easy sources of offense pretty reasonably. Um, mm-hmm. I think my, my opinion is in the NHL, there's two broad classes of easy offense. There's rush offense, which usually comes off of someone making a mistake, mm-hmm. like in the offensive zone or the neutral zone, right? Or, or you know, a lack of balance in, in a team's offensive zone structure or, you know, a good a, a fortune bounce. But usually, like, it's a little idiosyncratic. You can have players who can take advantage of it, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, if you have Matt Barzal, for example, you're going to be a much better rush team than if you don't because he's so good with the puck and he's so good in the neutral zone. Mm-hmm. But um, to some extent, you know, the great teams don't make those types of mistakes very often. They don't make terrible pinches regularly, right? They don't shoot into shin pads um, and, and, and cause breaks the other way. They don't overskate the puck in the neutral zone. They play above the puck. Um, so that source of offense is you want to be able to take advantage of it when it's there, but it's, it's also to some extent very dependent on your opponent giving it to you. Um, at least to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. You can force it, but again, some teams are more resistant to that, that, that pressure than others. And then the other source of easy offense is the offensive zone turnovers, which like, I think almost every team is, to some sense, susceptible to. Obviously, some are better than others. If you have Victor Hedman, if you have Adam Fox, you know, they're much better dealing with pressure than um, Roman Polak. Mm-hmm. So you want to create those levels of offense, but... In some cases, it's not going to be available, and you're going to have to make do with the fact that, okay, you may have the puck in a set situation where you're all on the outside and your opponents are in their zone, in their box, and how do you break them down in this way? Exactly. I I think a lot of the struggle with the Leafs has been, we have such a great first trick. You know, we have this great shooting or a cross-ice, Martin to Matthews, or what have you. We have these go-tos that are awesome. What do we do when those aren't working? And I think the answer, what do we do when those aren't working, has been a lot less impressive 
than the first couple things that we have going for us. Right. And it, it's not that, like, we're not saying, oh, the Leafs are a bad offensive team. It's just that, or that, like, the Leafs couldn't have won series with mm-hmm. the offensive structure they had before or with the offensive structure they have now. It's just, you know, as, as we've discussed against Columbus and against Montreal, um, they, they arguably did enough to win, but it wasn't quite enough. And all you can do is, like, try and inure yourself to the bounces as much as possible. Right. Right? Um, and all we're kind of espousing here is the idea of, like, can you do something on the margins to make it a little less likely that a team can shut you out? That a, that a, that a team can, like, shut down your, your... That when they shut down your first-choice offense, you still have something that can maybe give you um, the offense you need to just scrape by. Because, like, yeah, the, the, I'm not saying... The Leafs should definitely not rebuild their offense around point shots. Mm-hmm. Right? Or point shots and high tips and things like that. Um, but... Yeah, it's like sometimes you have to you have to practice and perfect and improve the areas where you know you can at least get in. Like it's an unsexy air, uh, way to generate offense, but you know you can get into that at any time. And if you could make that a little bit more effective, maybe that gives you the marginal goal you need. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we didn't have the marginal goals we needed last year by definition. Yeah, but I mean that's that's all it is. Like how many playoff series swing on one or two goals? Last year was such an obvious example because quite literally one goal at any of several moments would have swung it. But yeah, uh, that's absolutely something that we, we want to have is some secondary option, some, some, something to turn to when things get difficult. Yes. Um, so that, that was a yeah. very significant aside because the next thing on our list was to, to talk about was Michael Bunting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's fun. I like Michael Bunting. Yes, yeah, you know? he, he he's he's been enjoyable. Um, I think there's already some calls for him to replace Nick Ritchie on the on the top line, and I mean, we we have to caveat this with, with by saying that you know Bunting is facing easier competition than Ritchie is right now, which is particularly important because, um, you know the 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 type of offense that Bunting provides, I think, is is hurt in some way, like more significantly against top competition, right? Because you have suddenly just much better defensemen who are better at clearing the front of the net and not going to take as many penalties and things like that. So it's not clear that he would, you know, necessarily translate this exact level of effectiveness back to the to the top line. But, you know, alongside that, we have to recognize that he's also playing with, you know, not Mitch Marner and Tavares. I, yeah. So, I, the idea of Michael Bunting is exactly what I want. Yes. With Matthews and Marner. The idea of Michael Bunting is this, Tough, persistent, belligerent, kind of sandpapery, uh, offensive opportunist who's going to swarm around the net, piss everybody right the fuck off, and then catch the puck when it comes to him and fire it off. And he's already done that for a goal. Um, he, he didn't have to catch it. He had to make a little play before he fired it off. But still, yeah, he's and shown he enough that you can really hope for it. <laughs> he does seem to provide a bit more away from the crease than, than yes. Nick Ritchie has, right? Yeah, at, at least thus far, and he hasn't been great at that. I mean, there's there's definitely been plays where I've been <coughs> frustrated because, uh, for example, Nylander will make will you know make a nice pass and and the play would progress and then it will die on either Bunting or Kerfoot stick, and that's just because they're they're not elite offensive players, right? So that's mm-hmm. going to happen, you know, more relatively more than it happens than if uh, that was Mitch Marner instead, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what good offensive players do; they prolong offensive situations, even in scenarios where lesser players would have given it up. But Bunting, for what he, what, for what we're paying him for, and for his his pedigree, has been 
I think, good so far. He had a, he had a strong game yesterday. I, I do like that he draws penalties seemingly every game. I assume that's going to dry up at some point, but it's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's an easy guy to root for. Absolutely, yeah. Just uh, brings a lot to the team in terms of all those ineffable qualities that we admire. Also, I just feel like I want to clarify, when we talk about all these depth players, we can either we can either seem like we're sort of talking about them as if they're big, serious, top six, woo players, or kind of dis- discount them. This is like the low, mediocre range of the NHL in terms of forwards. And we've just got a whole lot of guys from that pile that we're trying to rank and sort of, okay, what's the best of these options? And so Michael Bunting does not have to be as good as Zach Hyman. He won't be. But I think at least in the early going, he's at least raised the possibility that he might be the right option in the top six. Yeah. Very much subject to change. Yes. And I mean, I think Keith will be flexible and move things around uh, a little bit at at some point. I'm not saying we'll we'll talk about Richie. Actually, we can talk about Richie next because the next thing on our list is like who hasn't looked as good. So this (laughs) would be a good transition. Like, I don't think Richie has looked good at all. I also, and I, I, I am biased against him in a sense where like, I, you know, he's just not really the type of player I enjoy watching generally because mm. he, he is very useless outside of the crease. Um, and he has a, you know, penchant for taking just awful cross-checking penalties <laughs> like <laughs> last night. Um, but I'm also not saying let's completely, let's, let's write him off after three games. I'm willing to give him a little bit more time. Right. Especially he hasn't because, impressed. Yeah, yeah, he hasn't. Yeah. And, but that line could have done... Like that, if that line has, if one of the, their their shots, you know, that Marner or Tavares has created goes in, and Richie picks up a cheapy assist on, or do we think more positively of him in that sense? Probably, right. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to over centralize on 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 that just yet. But yeah, he's he doesn't have an infinite leash on that on that spot right now, and I think, you know, Bunting is catching up to him and, and making a case for at least trying him out in in, in a higher role. I'd agree with that. The thing about Nick Ritchie, as you've said, is he has very pronounced strengths and weaknesses. Strengths are he is big. He can go to the high action areas of the ice. He can get a stick on some pucks and he'll score some goals. The downside is everything else. So (laughs) that's a bit unfair, but it's when that first thing isn't working, you know, when he's not producing, you're not remembering some tip that he just knocked in. Um, he gets frustrating in a hurry because his weaknesses are thrown into sharp relief. But, you know, in that preseason game a couple of weeks ago, he had two dynamite tips. It was against very soft competition. But if he gets one of those next game, people will be saying, see, that's why you get Nick Ritchie. Yeah. And so. I think, I mean, again, it's, it's three games. And there's a bit of an unfair comparison here because uh, – Richie will sometimes get taken off that line for Nylander after, like, TV timeouts or in offensive zone starts. Um, but Richie Tavares-Marner has not had good numbers overall. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that, that they've looked good, I think they did look good as a group in, in the latter half of the game, against, the second game against Ottawa, it has very clearly been Marner and Tavares. And, like, Richie is just, like, you know, also featuring. <laughs> um, yeah. And as you would expect, you know, the times when Tavares play uh, and Mar- Marner play with Nylander it's it's just like unequivocally way better yeah um, uh, now so. again that's biased sample because those are offensive zone shifts almost always 
Um, and Nylander, like, you know, we're not expecting Richie to be William Nylander. Yeah. Right. Um, but it yeah. would be really foolish to look at both Richie and Nylander and say that you would prefer Nick Richie. I can't imagine that anyone would ever have done that at any point since 2014. No, so, it, <laughs> sure. Would that have come up? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, look, he hasn't had a good couple of games. I think he can be better than this. I think that also we are, we are swayed the way that everyone is to some extent, by the fact that when pucks are going in, you look better. Mm -hmm. And I think Richie is more subject to that than most. So, yep. Yep. I, I agree with that, uh, completely. So yeah, he's kind of on thin ice a little bit. Like it's, the thing, if we, if we had more options, I know we said, oh, we have a million options for that, but like, you know, (laughs) they're not good options. No. (laughs) Cause it's like, okay, you know, you have Bunting and Richie and it's like, okay, well, Ilya Mikheyev, I mean, even putting aside his injury. Yeah. Do I want him there? Not really. Um, you can say, do you put Nylander on the left and then pair Kasha with, you know, a, a Nylander-led, uh, like a Nylander baseline with Kasha on the right? Mm-hmm. And then you put you can put like Bunting, say, up top. But like even then, you're still just, re- all, all you've done is some, you've, you've cobbled together a way to remove one of Bunting or Richie from you know, these top lines. But the reality is we have to rely on these guys. Yeah. This is right? who we and, got. And so. Bunting has been good so far. Richie has not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it's going to be interesting to see. The one thing we didn't... So we talked about them like a little bit obliquely. Um, but the other thing we have to mention, and I think on the good side, and in our, in your notes, Fulman, you said that like this might start some fights. Uh, <laughs> Mitch Marner. I think Mitch Marner has played pretty well. I don't think he's been perfect. He's had some quiet periods, but it's also like... Forgive me, how many seasons of Mitch Marner are we at now? This is the sixth one in the mm-hmm. NHL. And this is kind of what it's like. He's a ex- he's an exceptional perimeter player. He is very, very good um, around the edges of the play. And if he can make plays that go towards the center of the ice, he'll pick up assists. He'll spark plug offense. He'll do all sorts of great things. The puck hasn't gone in quite as much lately. And so he's setting with one assist. And I think everyone is just very, very mad at him over the playoffs, which is clouding how he's looked. But I think he's played fine. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the offense actually isn't what's concerning me right now. It's the defensive numbers for that line have been have been poor. Mm. Um, and again, it's three games. So it's, it's you don't want to over-centralize on those numbers versus how they look. Um, but yeah, like I, I think that's been a little concerning. And more concerning to me because, you know, I, I don't have any any doubt that the offense for Mitch Marner is there. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, the offense is going to be fine. He's going to have flaws. And maybe maybe those flaws are more kind of more centralized or more, more obvious in, in the playoffs. I'm not entirely convinced of that. Um, but I, I accept it's certainly a possibility. Um, but the offense is just not what concerns me. Mm-hmm. Right against Ottawa last night, Marner was all over the place in in a positive sense. He was mm-hmm. really creating great offense. If uh, Anton Forsberg doesn't make you know a, a candidate for the save of the year, robbing Jean Tavares in tight after a great pass by Marner, we're not having this conversation. Mm-hmm. We're saying Mitch Marner looks like Mitch Marner, and John Tavares looks like John Tavares. Yeah. So offensively, they're fine. I think. 
at earlier parts, you know, at, at various points, they they weren't always generating strong offense in the first three games, and I would like them to be better, and in, in more consistently putting pressure on the defense in those t- important areas of the ice. But I'm not concerned about them generally because the overall offensive production has been fine. It's just it's the defense that's that's been a little worrisome. I don't know if that if that's them or if you know it, if it's been on the Leafs defenseman as a whole. Um, in general, I actually think the Leafs quietly over the first three games facing not great offensive teams, we haven't had good defensive results. That's probably the biggest concern you would have to have about the Leafs at this point. Right, and what stood out to me was that the Muzzin Hall pairing did not look good to me in the first two yeah. games. And, and this, then this, Hall this, was at game three, Muzzin Hall better. Yeah, this this is this is kind of what I was alluding to, right? With the with Marner and Tavares having bad defensive results, is it because of them or is it because? You know, they, they spend a decent amount of time with Muzzin Hall, and Muzzin Hall just looked really bad to start the year in the first two games. As you said, Muzzin was much better yesterday. Um, but yeah, like, it's... We, we, <laughs> we, need, we need them to be good. We need Muzzin, in particular, to really elevate Justin Hall. Yeah, and this is the sort of painful part of the conversation, because you think, gee, why would Jake Muzzin not look as good? Well, it could be early season rust. It's a tiny sample. There are lots of reasons to hand wave that away. He is also 32. He's had injuries the last few years. He's not a fleet of foot player to begin with. It's not that hard to see, like, the beginnings of a decline in Jake Muzzin's game. Mm-hmm. Uh, as at least being a possibility. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm just saying that's a thing that is a big worry for me. Because I would say... Since he's gotten here, Jake Buzzin has probably been the Leafs' best all-around defenseman. Certainly it's, the best at 5-on-5. Five five. Yeah, like, it's to hard to weigh that... his comparisons against Riley on the power play. But, yeah. Um, with the power play going completely to hell last year, <laughs> um, that plays a role. So, yeah, I, like, I think we rely on Jake Muzzin, and the reason that the Leafs' defense has been sneakily pretty competent the last season plus is on him to a large measure. And then T.J. Brody. Who I think has looked fine. Um, yeah, so all we can do is hope that works itself out. There's not a plan B for Jake Muzzin gets old in a hurry. I, I'm not saying that he is. I'm saying I hope that he's not because we're, we need him. Um, right. Justin Hall, I think a lot of people are going to keep hearkening back to the expansion draft and thinking we should have kept Jared McCann, we should have kept Jared McCann, and maybe, I don't know. Um, but I think Hall is going to ebb and flow. I don't think he'll look as bad as he did the first couple of games. So, yeah, with 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 Muzzin, I guess the thing that gives me a bit of hope is that what you know we're, the 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 issues that we we've seen them have have been more along the lines of it hasn't been like okay he's just getting beat to spots and he's no longer able to make plays on the puck. It it seems just more idiosyncratic and and more. Um, that, you know, bobbling the puck and, you know, pucks hopping over sticks or or an errant pass here and there, things that I could more easily explain with Russ. And maybe this is just me trying to get high on copium because we cannot survive Justin Hall, or or sorry, we cannot survive Jake Muzzin being any less than the Jake Muzzin he's been the past few years. Yeah. Right. And again, I I guess this is another important thing to, to remember when we talk, we talk about the Leafs, like, we've said, this, the Leafs is a good team, right? Mm-hmm. We know this is a good team. Our bar is, can we win rounds? 
right? Yeah. We can make the playoffs with Justin or with Jake Muzzin taking a step back. We can make the playoffs with Justin Hall taking a step back. It won't be easy because the Atlantic is tough. But can we win rounds with them taking a step back? No, we cannot. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's, yeah. that's just to keep in mind, that's the bar we're dealing with here. Like we're, we're setting the bar high, but I think the Leafs would want the bar to be set high. And I think, you know, if Cal Dubas, when Cal Dubas listens to this podcast, he would agree with our very reasonable, <laughs> um, you know, expectations. Yeah. And for, like, judging the Leafs relative to the goal of, are these guys looking the way we would want a contender to look? Yeah. I mean, in terms of results, you can say, look, they got four points in three games. That's enough to cruise to a high seed. Yes. That's fine. Um, Results-wise, it's fine. And again, we're doing this all without our best player and maybe yeah. the second or third best player in the league. Yeah. And so that makes a huge difference. But it's something to keep in mind. If if there's a real concern for me, it's actually that. The rest of this stuff, I think, is pretty manageable. Mm-hmm. Like, it's within the realm of stuff that just happens. Um, so let's hope that Jake Buzzin settles in. Um, yes. We wanted to talk a bit about Timothy Liljegren, who's only been in one game. But it's a topic of much discussion. You know, he was a first-round pick in 2017, has hung around the fringes of the NHL at times, has gotten into a few games here and there with not a ton of success the last couple seasons. And so he's still trying to make the jump from good in the AHL to a real boy in the NHL. I think people seemed to like him last night more than I did. I didn't think he was awful, but... I sometimes wonder if people are kind of hoping and seeing what they hope to see. Yeah, I think, so I don't, I don't always agree with Katya's evaluations of players, but I do genuinely quite agree with her, her take on Liljegren, which is that like people are like big successing him, Mm. (laughs) the opposite of big mistaking. I thought that was a very clever phrase from her. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like I think there's a lot of times we, we, we look at, you know, some, he'll do something nice, and it's like, oh, nice, that was a good play. And then you look at the stats; they weren't that great, generally speaking. Uh, last night, you know, uh, they were much worse than Jake Muzzin's. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on on the whole, uh, I think I guess Muzzin got paired with with Sandine at some points. I think probably after a power play, or probably you know, yeah, some some mixed shift, and that that juiced his numbers uh, further. But yeah, I mean, Logan just didn't look like he was processing the game at the speed you need to in order to, to really succeed in the NHL. And I'm a little worried about his ability to do so. Uh, he did have a very ugly play where he like bobbled the puck on a, on a, after receiving it just outside his own blue line and it led to a, a decent chance against for, um, for Ottawa. In his defense, Wayne Simmons gave him a truly awful pass. Which I know players need to be able to handle suboptimal passes, but like this was in his feet, um, yeah, and like quite awkward. So I'm not trying to overcentralize on that one play because I, you know, that stuff happens. But just throughout the game, Lilligren just didn't look amazing to me. Yeah, and hey, it's one game. We'll see what he can do. Justin Hall is apparently suffering from some non-COVID illness, so I don't know how long he's going to be away. Presumably not very. Um, and then we'll see if Liljegren gets into more games. I'm hoping to see more from him. Yes, I, I want. I want know? to see an extended run of him, um, because yeah, it, it, you know, he, it takes time to get comfortable in the NHL. His his track record in the NHL is not good so far, mm-hmm. but you know, we'll it, see. I I I definitely agree with what you know. A lot of different people have said that they 
you know, strip away what you want though you're going to be and look at what he's done. And if this was a guy in another team, we'd just be like, eh, yeah, it just seems like just a guy. Exactly. And there's a lot of held over magic from first round pick. Mm-hmm. It just, it takes a long time to dissipate in the minds. And also, people view him as taking the job away from Justin Hall, who has a wildly fluctuating popularity in Toronto at any given time, it feels like. Mm-hmm. But they think, okay, look, Hall is mostly being carried by Jake Muzzin, which may be true. Uh, Lily Green can probably do that at least. And I'm like, maybe he can't though. <laughs> like, I don't think that Justin Hall is like actually the power of the pairing or anything like that. But I also don't think he's a total just warm body. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, still though, more good than bad in the first few games, considering the circumstances. It wasn't dazzling. It's not going to cleanse the pain of the first round loss to Montreal. Um, but, you know, if you told me the Leafs are going to play three games without Austin Matthews to start the season, and we win two of them, I'd take it. So, Agreed. And hopefully Matthews can start playing Monday. That would be ideal. Yes. Um, you know, obviously they shouldn't rush him because he is, you know, <laughs> like he's too central. They... They are quite right to be very conservative with this recovery um, in general and for long-term reasons, but we'd certainly love to have him back. So, mm. oh, As a side note, um, did you read that ESPN feature on, on Matthews? I skimmed it. Okay. It was so, a bit healthy, heavy. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, it's, it's for like hardcore Leafs fans, it's like the same, it's a lot of the same anecdote. It's, the, it's like the very generic Austin Matthews feature. It's like mm-hmm. he grew up playing in Arizona on small ice, which has helped him in tight spaces. He, yeah. you know, connected with the Ukrainian coach um, who has helped develop him. He really likes fashion. So it's all stuff we knew. Yeah. Um, I, I sent it to, to a friend of mine who's just getting into hockey here. Mm-hmm. And she said that her, her impression was that Matthews seems to, be, seems to want to be more interesting as a person than he is. Which is... <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> that's ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very cutting, but also <laughs> seems incredibly mm. accurate. I mean, I've seen the man's outfits, so <laughs> I can't rule that out. Wow, that's uh, that's savage. We might have to close down the podcast after <laughs> your friend just disemboweled our best player. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I thought that was, I thought that was just uh, that was just funny. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Anyway, on the ice, at least he's very interesting, and we'll, yes. we'll trust to. Uh, it has a case for other people how interesting he is off of, but that's funny. Right. Um, we wanted to talk just about a general thing, you know, in the, the, the final segment of our podcast. And that yeah, like so this to... is normally where we talk about bad takes, but we're expanding our, our scope here. We're not talking about... A, normally bad takes is like very centralized on a person or a set of people who have said something dumb on the internet. And in, <laughs> uh, generally a media person. And instead we're just taking aim at media as a whole right now. Or sports media specifically. Um, and yeah. I guess this isn't a new criticism or an awful criticism by us. Other people have remarked on this with more, um, you know, with, with more depth and more rigor. But I guess what we wanted to discuss was access reporting in sports media. So, yeah, that's the preface. Fluidman, take it away. So this actually stems from basketball as the immediate sparking of the discussion. Uh, Kyrie Irving, who is a eccentric star player for the Brooklyn Nets, the NBA, uh, has been pretty absolute about not getting vaccinated, even though it's going to require him to miss. Well, it would require significant numbers of games. It looks like he's not going to play at all until that issue is resolved. 
And so he gave a, a quasi interview story to the athletic. It was actually mostly sourced from friends mm-hmm. of Kyrie was the angle on it by Shams Terania. And it really yeah, fr- friends named Irie Curving. <laughs> I probably should have been like, Oh yeah, but it wasn't okay, but it was him. So <laughs> anyway, at least I suspect he had a strong influence over it. And, it cast his anti-vax attitudes as being sort of vaguely heroic and sort of a respectable struggle for, uh, I guess, the, the rights of the voiceless and stuff like that. And it was an exceptionally generous reading of what's a pretty selfish and stupid decision. And so yes. you wonder, how does an article like this come to be? Well, when you're an insider in any sport, and this is where the relevance to hockey comes in, you cultivate sources if you're an insider. You have people that you talk to and they tell you things and that influences your reporting. And to some extent, they're getting benefits out of the, the relationship by getting information passed out to the public through you. They're saying things to you that they want heard widely. Spread the word. And so the result is inevitably that they will try to angle your reporting and their benefit. And being a journalist is about managing that relationship in a way where you get useful info out of it, but you don't totally sell out your actual credibility as a journalist right? to just be a stenographer for whatever they want you to say. You don't uncritically repeat ideas or arguments that are, I guess, in this case especially, not only you know, erroneous and irresponsible, but factually incorrect, you know, it potentially harmful mm-hmm. to to society as a whole, right? Like yeah. you, there has to be some... If, if people, people make fun of, of journalists and, and, you know, the media for having an inflated sense of self-worth at times, mm-hmm. but the reality is, you know... Being a journalist is a real job that is difficult and requires, you know, very delicate management of these sorts of things that requires a lot of critical thought. It requires the ability to be able to uh, understand how to understand the, the perspective of your source and present the information in such a way that, you know, it's the information is conveyed responsibly, but also not as your own view or not as an objective truth as opposed to the perspective of a single person, which may or may not be correct, right? And it's not easy to do. But what's happening now is it's just a lot of these these journalists, these sports journalists in particular, are glorified iPhone notes memo, voice memos. Right. And so sports is always treated as Kind of a joke, not subject to the same rigorous standards, maybe, as other reporting. You know, the the line is, it's the toy department of journalism. Mm -hmm. And so people sometimes say, hey, why are you taking it so seriously? It's just about sports. Who cares? Why, you know, what's wrong with some some access merchant reporting where, yeah, you favor the your sources to some extent? Well, when you get to a serious issue like this like vaccines or like what's going on with the Chicago Blackhawks mm-hmm. or like a hundred others, with Washington football team. Yeah. Or, you know, like a hundred stories that are significant. 
that are sports stories, but that have a greater importance, suddenly you have a lot of people who have spent most of their careers, who have gotten much of their careers, by being in bed with management sources or, or people on the inside of a team who have a line. And so when that line is bad or irresponsible, when they're just spouting bullshit, suddenly you don't have journalists with the independence to say, hey, wait a minute, no, that's nonsense, and to call them out on it. And that actually does start mattering after a while. I Like, in a trivial sense, you see it all the time with, say, the Edmonton Oilers media, who have been almost openly in management's pocket at every turn. Um, and it was most glaring in the, in the Chiarelli era because the, <laughs> the team would do the most absolutely brain-dead things you can imagine. And as long as it was remotely possible, guys like Mark Spector or Terry Jones would be like, it's shaping up pretty well. We think it's actually going just great. Uh, and th I think that was a reflection of their sourcing, of, of who they talked to in the organization. So even it affects the day-to-day -day analysis of the sport. But when you get to serious issues, right. yeah, and it's, it's like, a real problem. Yeah, and it's fun to make fun of people like you know, Spectre or, or you know, wh whatever local beat writer is, is carrying water for the team. As you said, that, that's trivial. But sports, despite being, I guess, in some sense, a very trivial exercise, are a real industry with billions of dollars, mm -hmm. with very powerful people who can you know, have huge impacts on the people around them and the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, it, it, there are situations that arise from sports that are really important. This stuff with the with Kyrie Irving and kind of painting his um, painting his refusal to get the vaccine as some sort of being a voice for the voiceless is incredibly irresponsible, especially considering the very pronounced racial disparities in uh, in how COVID has impacted society. Right. And like to, to, to print that and not remark on the fact that, you know, Kyrie Irving, who's done a lot of really good things for black communities across America, uh, you know, to, to, to point to kind of just not mention the fact that his stance is completely at odds with you know, something else that he purports to stand for and where he has put money into. It's completely irresponsible. Right? And printing that uncritically is an absolute failure of journalism because it, it doesn't reflect what is actually going on. It's a press release masquerading as journalism. Right. And so when we've dealt with serious issues in the past in hockey, I've thought several times you'll get these very serious stories and it'll seem like only Rick Westhead or Katie Baker are reporting on it. Katie Strang, I think you mean. Katie Strang, sorry. Um, and so you get the these stories that are significant, that are important, that are just not discussed or that are kind of treated in a trivial way by journalists with like a wider reach. And I don't think hockey is generally as extreme as what you see sometimes in the NFL where ESPN, I mean, they just had a debacle of their own on this where a prominent ESPN reporter sent a story on labor negotiations to a management source, send him the whole thing and said, does this look okay to you? Which you're never supposed to do. Um, but yeah, like I think you see it in hockey, absolutely, where the influence of we get to be on the inside and talk to the people um, really colors the reporting. 
and, and really shades it in a way that probably does people a disservice when they have to talk about something serious. Like, I'm not even just talking about the day-to-day -day stuff. Like, Eric Francis, who I think is absolutely terrible, or mm -hmm. a reporter for the Calgary Flames. And he'll just, he'll say whatever they want him to say, basically. But then you had a situation where Calgary was negotiating with the city for a new arena. And as with most sports teams, they were trying to take them to the cleaners. And Francis was out there pontificating basically for the team's position. Mm -hmm. You know, I like that's the basic takeaway here is like all this inside stuff is good. It's fun. We all, you know, I, I read LeBron stuff. I, I like Elliot Friedman. I read his stuff too, but it's like, that does have an impact. And it, it's always about striking a balance where you maintain enough independence to occasionally say, okay, no, that's bullshit. And I'm not going to go along with it. I'm not going to print it uncritically. Yes. So. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that was, that was basically our bad take of the week. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad that we had to reach into the NBA and pull it out. But I think it has some general re relevance. No, so. it, it absolutely does. And, I mean, we, we saw this. And this was a source of much frustration. Again, again, this is far more trivial, of course. But with the, the Mitch Marner contract negotiation, where, you know, various media sources were kind of like, uncritically printing Mar Marner camp press releases of like, well, why isn't Mitch Marner as good as Austin Matthews? And it's like, well, you, you fucking know why. You just <laughs> fucking watch him. <laughs> right? Like, it, that, that, was, that was so, fr that was like, the, I forget where the saying is from, but like, there's a saying of like, you know, the energy spent to uh, refute like a, a, a unit of metric, of like bullshit is, <laughs> disproportionately higher than the energy it takes to just produce it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what that entire summer felt like. Yeah. Well, I, and the thing is, is that Dreger would say I'm reporting on the investigation. Oh, sorry. On the negotiation. Excuse me. That's a very different thing. I'm reporting on the negotiation accurately, mm -hmm. which he was doing in a sense, you know, like he wasn't saying things that weren't true. He wasn't yeah. making stuff up, but <laughs> the fact was that he was basically a bullhorn for, Marner's position in that negotiation. Well, you know, that, that does shade your reporting. Mm -hmm. If only by virtue of here are the things that you have information to talk about. And and that's also interesting because we spent a lot of this talking about, um, there's like an inherent management view of sports. Yeah. Right? And this is actually a situation where the, the uncritical, well, both of these, both the Irving and Marner um, things. And again, very clear, very, very different levels of severity here and very, very different levels of importance. Mm -hmm. um, both of them are, are kind of, as you said, bullhorns for, for agents, essentially. Yeah. Right? Um, so I think, you know, typically we think of beat writers as carrying water for management, but it's happening more and more that players and player, you know, uh, reps are realizing the power of playing the same game with their own yeah. reporters. Which, from their perspective, I get it. And yeah, there is also an issue here of how management thinking mm -hmm. shades a lot of like, and the truth is this applies to us. Oh, absolutely. Um, because yeah, you know, the more you think about the salary cap, you're invested in the success of the team first and foremost. Well, you inevitably have a management perspective in a, in a league like this, where from our point of view, we're thinking Mitch Marner should make much, make less money because that would open more space to sign better players. And then the team is better from Mitch Marner's at it position it's i work my ass off i'm an elite player i can get this money i should get it 
And so, you know, I don't hold it against him personally by any means that he pursued this negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have to be aware that that management perspective colors everything that we hear, including us. And now you're saying, yeah, player agents have started to realize, okay, this is one way for us to push back. And <laughs> it hasn't necessarily led to more accuracy. It's just led to more stenography. Yep. Um, um, yeah, so I think that that's just about everything we wanted to, to cover. Uh, anything else you wanted to bring up? No, I'm good. Awesome. So, yeah, thank you to everyone for listening. We're going to be back to our weekly schedule uh, with, the, with the leaf season, so uh, you can look forward to more of our stuff you know, every, every Sunday. Um, so, again, thank you for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuldman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com and all of the rest of our you know, amazingly talented uh, set of writers there. You can also catch Fuldman and I on Twitter at uh, ATFuldman and RV. I reverse the order to what I usually do, um, but I'm definitely not going to re-record this outro. So, <laughs> thank, again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.